We will be, and you may turn to 2 Kings 17 today. And this is kind of a milestone for us. This is all we get to talk about the northern kingdom, Israel. No more switching back and forth between Judah and Israel and Judah and Israel, trying to keep them parallel to each other. Because as of this lesson, Israel ceases to exist. Uh, the northern kingdom is taken into captivity. So uh, we'll be in 2 Kings 17 this morning. Let's pray and begin. Father, we're grateful for your plans for us in the day. Thank you that you are always turning our hearts back to you, that you are tireless in your pursuit of our thinking and of our conduct to first transform our hearts because we are wayward, straying like sheep. We long to be returned to um, the shepherd of our souls, and yet we, we need you to pursue us um, because in our waywardness, we don't eagerly and automatically turn back. But the testimonies of your word today are such that they arouse our attention, make us aware of oversights and things that we have been engaged in that we have justified and have pretended that they were fine. May we have our eyes opened to your word, to your law, to your plans for us, and walk with you because of Jesus' redemption given to us. So bless our time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ran across a new vocabulary word a few years back, and it perfectly describes a phenomenon uh, that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, but that we also see in our text today. That word means responding to an accusation by making a counter-accusation especially a charge that excuses one's own faults as insignificant in the face of somebody else's greater misdeeds. So somebody charges you with something, you just you kind of hurl a charge back or you point to somebody else and say, well, he's, he's even worse off. As if somehow that his being worse off excuses whatever our own misdeeds are. Anybody know what we call that right now? So it's specifically responding to an accusation by making a counter-accusation. What about-ism? What a great word, you know? Okay, that's a brand new vocabulary word in the sense of, again, it's not that old. And yet the phenomenon has been with us for thousands of years. In fact, we used to call this passing the buck or something analogous to that. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of passing the buck combined with several other things, and I think that's why we invented a new word. But again, it's specifically deflecting a completely legitimate charge against ourselves by pointing to, yeah, but what about so-and-so? He, he's even worse. When God confronted Adam in regard to Adam's raw disobedience, what did he do? He couldn't say, no, I didn't do it. He couldn't say, I'm clean, you got the wrong guy, what did he do? Well, yeah, but what about Eve? Because, you know, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit and I did it. So if you're going to talk about somebody who's bad, that's Eve. I mean, she not only ate the fruit, I, I ate the fruit, but it was an accident, you know, it was, and, and she, you know, got me all involved in this, so she's much more layers of guilt in the whole process. And of course, Eve is going to do the same thing, well, what about the serpent? 
Eve engaged in the same whataboutism by pointing to the snake, and ever since we've practiced the moral and logical fallacy of pointing out somebody else's wrongdoing as worse than our own, and in comparison to ours, we are so much better. You can almost see our halo, though it's slipped a little bit. Now, how well does that actually work in practice? But officer, I was only going 15 over. What about the people who are going 18 over and blowing by me like I was standing still? And the officer's like, ticket, here you go. What about is it doesn't matter that other people were going 18 over, you were going 15 over. But dad, I only tried a little bit of alcohol. Lots of other people at the party were getting totally sauced. Doesn't matter. The fact that other people happen to be worse is irrelevant to the fact that you were doing what was wrong. Or what, what, about, what about this one? But boss, I only squandered 30 minutes in the, the lounge. Bob over there spent half the afternoon yammering away. So if you're going to pick on anybody, pick on Bob. Correct him first, and then you can come back and talk to me about only spending half an hour or one-sixteenth of the total workday doing nothing related to work. We blame people outright for our own actions, and in addition, we compare our sins with theirs in a way that thinks just, we think justifies our own choices. So our text today brings us face-to-face with the consequences of exactly this kind of self-justification. 2 Kings chapter 17, let's just read the first five verses because that starts us into our text. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, Hoshea, the son of Elah, began to reign in Samaria over Israel. And he reigned nine years. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, basic objective fact. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Is he going to point to that? No, he'll he'll point to the next one. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him. Apparently, Hoshea was the least bad among all the rotten apples of Israel. He was the least wicked of any of the kings that they had all the way back to Jeroboam. So he was not like the kings of Israel who were before him. And God's going to bring us face to face with an interesting phenomenon then because we look at the situation and say, well, why did they go into captivity under Hoshea then? Why would God pick the best of the bad, or is it the least of the bad? I don't know. Anyway, why would God pick that guy as the individual who would be reigning when Israel is taken captivity? Well, we have a couple of answers that are theologically correct, one of which is that God has allowed national sins to build up to the point that as a nation they are ripe for judgment, and therefore it doesn't matter what the king is doing, they're going into judgment. But I think in addition to that, the Lord also continues to structure his interactions with humanity to bring attention to certain realities, one of which is wrongdoing is still wrong. We can't get away with pointing at the higher rates of sin out there in the world, the the greater depths of depravity out there in the world, while justifying what's going on in our own lives. The king of Assyria, did I finish that? I don't think I finished reading that. Yet not as the kings of Israel who were before him against him came up Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his vassal and paid him tribute. The king of Assyria found treachery in Hoshea. 
For he, that's talking about Hoshea, had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and offered no tribute to the king of Assyria, as he'd done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria, and for three years he besieged it. The passage is telling us this theme. Because not as bad, let's put that in quotation marks, because not as bad is still not good. Serve the Lord only. Not as bad does not make us good. We cannot ever point at other people and say, but they have gone farther than we have gone into iniquity and therefore we're okay. No, the right response of our hearts means if there's anything bad here, I repent of it and go back to serving God alone eradicating all those other things in life that clutter my life and impede upon it and intrude upon it in ways that make me unclean. So the passage begins in these first five verses by showing us the first kind of not as bad. And that is that lying to an enemy is still lying. Hoshea could look at this and say, it's it's okay because he's an enemy. I mean, it's not like I was lying to my best friend. It's not like I was lying to the nation of Israel. It's not like I was lying in the temple or something like that. I was lying to an enemy. And God says, it's, that's still wrong. Really? I've run into a lot of believers that would struggle with that statement. And say, no, you can lie to an enemy. I mean, what do you want to do in the middle of war? Tell the enemy all your plans? And I'm saying, well, that's a false dichotomy. Um, you're, you're trying to represent it as if we only have two options. There are lots of additional options. No, you don't tell your enemy your plans, but you don't lie to him either. Really? Yeah. It's not very palatable to hear that, but it's true. We have only one father of lies in all of history, recorded and unrecorded. There is only one father of lies, master of lies, and he is not God. The father of lies is Satan. And the rest of the scriptures will actually back up this statement that lying to an enemy is still lying. That is, when Israel, in this case Hoshea, made a covenant with Assyria and became Assyria's vassal. So it's not, it's way beyond simply, hey, Assyria, I'll pay you a little bit of money this this year if you'll leave us alone this year. It was beyond that, because that could still be a statement of true, and we could still seek help from Egypt. He goes to Assyria and says, I will make a covenant with you, and I will become a servant king. We'll supply people to your army, we'll supply food, we will give you taxes every year, and in return, you will protect us from Syria, and you will protect us from possibly Judah, the Edomites, the Philistines, Egypt, anybody else that might attack us. So it was a a covenant, a contract, a promise. And the scripture tells us then there was treachery found in him because while he's still under that covenant, he goes and shops for a better deal. Sees if he could come up with something else that was superior that would put him in better financial straight positions. So he's a liar. You say, well, maybe it's just happenstance. God happened to use that circumstance as justification in Assyria's mind to attack Israel, 
but the lie really didn't have anything to do with causation, didn't it? Do you remember the instance and illustration in 2 Samuel 21 where there was a famine in the land in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said there's blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. The question, who are the Gibeonites? Well, inhabitants of Gibeon, good for us. Okay, first step, yay. Got to the inhabitants of Gibeon. Who are the inhabitants of Gibeon? What is their genealogy? What's their background? Okay, they tricked Israel. They lied, by the way, on their own. But Israel did not seek the face of the Lord to discern the lie that was being fed to them. So Israel made promises to them. The Gibeonites were a bunch of pagans. They're part of the nations within the land of the same stock as the Amorites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and so on. So they're the same stock of people that are within the land that God said you are to drive them out utterly or destroy them completely because they're pagans. But they had come to Israel when Israel entered the land in the first place under Joshua's leadership still. And they struggle, and oh, <laughs> you know, we, we <clears throat> sorry my throat's bad, but it's been really dusty on the journey. And, and the journey's been long. We came from a far land. When we left, this bread was fresh baked. It was piping hot. We should have put it in a Ziploc, but instead we just put it in skins and threw it on our animals. And look, it's all moldy and dry. And our clothes, I mean, look at these sandals. Have you ever seen holes like that and somebody's still wearing them? Brand new. I got them from Cana's. Not Coles, but Cana's or something like that. Right, right before we left. And they made all these promises that they would last forever and these would be the last pair of shoes you'd need. And look at them now. Of course they were lying. But again, the Israelites did not seek the faith of the Lord And the scripture text explicitly says in Joshua chapter 9, the people of Israel made an oath and a covenant. We swear by God, here are the provisions of the covenant. We'll protect you. And then they find out they're just barely up the road. They're like, we're going to get to them within just two or three more days of marching. They're nearby. And they were a mighty city, by the way. The Gibeonites were terrified of Israel, even though they were already a mighty city. So when Saul came along later on, and and a passage even tells us, well, he thinks he's zealous for the Lord. Well, he, he sort of is in a very corrupt way. He never seeks the face of the Lord, really. But he starts exterminating the Gibeonites. And God brings judgment on the entirety of the land of Israel and Judah because of one breach of an oath that was given hundreds of years before to a bunch of pagans who were our enemies. God apparently takes truth incredibly seriously. Lying, especially in small ways and forms, is especially problematic. Why? Because a little white lie or a lie for greater good doesn't seem that bad. I mean, it's not like I'm a compulsive liar like our reigning politicians of both parties who if they open their mouths they're they're lying you just you just count on it i promise you 
this will never happen under my leadership. Okay, fine. I remember one not that long ago. You'll remember it. There will not be new taxes under my leadership. Immediately after he's in office handing down new taxes. And you go, that's a tax. He's like, no, 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 that's a, that's a levy. That's, a, that's kind of a, a tariff on all the goods. Like, that is exactly the definition of a tax. I mean, it's a tax. You didn't waste any time after you were in office before you broke your oath. So what has happened? Hoshea had become this vassal, and now he looks to sow king of Egypt, the pharaoh, the king of Egypt. But that violates his oath. Had Hoshea not made an oath to Assyria, then approaching so king of Egypt would not be so bad. Terrible pun, right? But he's added treachery to his other sins. Okay? And again, I say there were other ways around this. He could have talked with the king of Assyria and said, hey, I'll give you money this year, essentially not to attack us. No promises made for the future. No guarantees in either direction. And things are fine. Then he can approach so king of Egypt as he wishes. But not once the covenant is made. Now he must keep to his word. Have we heard that recently, like maybe half an hour ago from Psalm 15? Where the man who swears to his own hurt and will not go back. The person who makes a promise because he thought it was the right thing and he still won't go back on it. This takes place a lot of times in business. A lot of times in business. I have contracted for people uh, to, to paint houses before. And in the process of painting, we discovered certain things were uh, unexpectedly wrong with the house. And then you have a choice to make. You know, do I actually paint it for the price that I said I would paint it for, or do I go back on that? And we consistently swallowed the loss. Sometimes you paint and (laughs) barely break even, and you're thinking, what, is my time worth nothing? And so I learned, by the way, to write into the contracts that I gave you know, if there are unexpected contingencies, the contract itself is to be renegotiated. So if I go in and start the painting process and I find out that there's actually some water damage in one of the back rooms or something that they hadn't, they had tried to cover and hide, they hung a tapestry in front of it, or now the tapestry comes down, I'm like, seriously? All that wallboard has to come out, it has to be primed, it has to be painted properly. So I learned to write that into the contracts from that point on so that it could be of, of perfect integrity, and to say, yeah, when you knew the water damage was there, you hit it for me, etc., we will renegotiate this, or exclude this from the contract. I charge that much for that room, I'm not painting that room for you. You can find somebody else who's willing to do it with the damage there. But we have to be careful about how we give our word in the first place so that we hold it in the second. And there, there are some young parents in here, and some middle parents in here and some older parents in here, always tell your children the truth. Always tell them the truth. Then they know they can always trust you. Now, it doesn't mean you have to tell them all the truth because they're not an authority figure. They do not get to come up to you and say, Father, Mother, tell me everything about family finances right now. Do we, in fact, have enough money to go to whatever vacation or something? It's none of their business. You have to be an authority figure to compel all the truth from somebody, particularly in a court case. But always tell the truth. That can get you in your, its own sort of trouble. So we, we taught our children from the beginning. You know, they asked us about, they came home with Santa Claus. Was Santa Claus real? No. 
no, he's, well, he wasn't a real individual. He's this his, historical figure who did these kinds of things and was sainted by the Roman Catholic Church after the fact and then blown up into this legend today. And then your kids run off to school. Santa Claus is dead. You know, okay, there has to be a little discretion, obviously, and the way you communicate truth so that truth is conveyed gently and appropriately to others as well, but always tell the truth. Then they never doubt. Never have to worry if you're hiding things, manipulating things, because all the way along the line, you have been a person of truth. So be careful about justifying lying of lesser levels. It's not that significant. It's not that big of a deal. Simply because others lie worse than we might. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria and carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and feared other gods. They walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and in the custom of the kings that Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away from before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. I underline that key phrase in the middle of that passage because sinning quietly is still sinning. Well, sinning quietly is a whole lot better than sinning overtly, isn't it? I mean, isn't, isn't stealing small things better than, like, rushing into a store with 60 young people and pillaging the entire store and running away? Well, better in what way? It's the same root sin with the same ultimate consequences that just happens to do less instantaneous or immediate damage to the store owner. But it's the same sin. Sinning quietly is still sinning. Now, the passage actually states the consequence first, all right? Verse 6, as we roll into it, it, it brings the consequences front and forward, front loads it, puts it right off here at the beginning, and tells you about the damage that is caused. The king of Assyria took the people captive and carried them away as far as modern Iran. It says the cities of the Medes. The Medes were later allies of the Persians. Medes conquered the Persians. Um, and you have the Medes and Persians unite into one empire, into Darius. But that's a pretty long distance. Okay, so we used this map last week, and last week it was a good sign of invasion. But here the deportation. They begin the deportation by taking Israel over towards Assyria, or the heartland of Assyria, but they go way beyond that, all the way into modern Iran, well past Iraq, into Iran, the farthest reaches of the empire. And I think you already know strategically why they would do that. If you leave people connected with their, their own homeland, there's a greater probability of rebellion. I mean, where in the world are we seeing trouble because some small group attached to that exact dot on the map 
is fighting for that little dot on the map. Any places come to mind? What's that? Gaza. Gaza. Ah, we want we want all the territory. There there are other discussions there, since uh, being offered way more than Gaza, the Palestinians turned it down cold. Said no, actually we want the complete annihilation of Israel, and we'll settle for nothing less. But nonetheless, as long as there are Palestinians there, uh, Arabs, sorry, there, Palestinian is a fiction. Um, as long as there are Arabs in that exact location attached to that exact link, there's going to be trouble. And I don't think there is an easy solution other than the return of Jesus who will set all things right. I don't pretend that there's an easy solution. Other places like that? Israel is actually supplying weapons to a nation right now. Anybody know what that is? I haven't heard many. There, there probably is some. But there's a smaller, much smaller nation that they're supplying weapons to. Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is Muslim, and the Azerbaijanis are trying to completely take over a breakaway region within their own country that happens to be populated by Armenians. And Azerbaijan and Armenia have been at war with each other as far back in human history as we can go. Bam, it's like, like way, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years they have been at war with each other. So there's a little enclave, what is it, Nagorno-Karabakh or something like that, a little enclave of, of Armenians within Azerbaijan, and Israel is helping, Azerbaijan, helping Muslims defeat Christians, loosely speaking, uh, they're Eastern Orthodox, uh, within their own territory. And the Armenians are fighting for the territory because they happen to have had those particular villages for hundreds of years, and the Azerbaijanis are fighting because they're like, no, we surround you, so it's our territory. Same week, in the news, I'm looking at um, Bosnia and Serbia are starting to saber-rattle again against each other. They're just never quite settle those borders. Whose land is it really? And people are willing to fight for it. Well, Assyria was shrewd enough, astute enough to realize that if you leave people anywhere connected with their own homeland, so we'll leave Israel in Israel but under our governor. Babylon's going to try that a little bit later. <laughs> and the people kill the governor and take over the land. I was like, no, no, let's not do that. Let's take the people out of Israel and scatter them all over the empire. So we'll put a little bit of them there, a little bit of them here, a little bit of them there. And they have no allegiance to Medea and no allegiance to Persia and no allegiance to Assyria and no allegiance to any of the lands in which they find themselves, and they're just struggling to cope, to get by, because they're in a foreign place, surrounded by foreigners with foreign gods and a foreign language and foreign culture, and they have no choice about being there. They don't get to pack their bags and move back. They're just spending all their energies trying to make ends meet and get by. They're not worried about rebellion. Very shrewd. And that's why it leads to the complete end of Israel. Judah will revive again after the Babylonian captivity. Israel will not. And even in the time of Jesus and the disciples, Samaria is a mongrel, Gentile, and, and Israelite mix of people because uh, Assyria will import so many from the surrounding nations. So what was God's opinion then of sending quietly? 
Well, the Lord knows something about sinning quietly, and I think you could follow it through in the, in the passage, right? The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. And yet we can't even get out of that verse without what else happening. They built for themselves high places. I'm like, to me, high places don't feel very secret. <laughs> That's because it doesn't take long to move from secret sin to open sin. We can't protect. Now, we, we all commit secret sin of every imaginable stripe and type. All the virtues are, we fail to practice all the virtues as we ought to practice all the virtues. We are not yet glorified. We look forward to that. But holding on to secret sin and protecting it and guarding it is the problem. Instead of constantly and repeatedly and emphatically repenting of it every time we sin and saying, I don't want it to turn into open sin. I'm not in favor of my secret sin. But Israel adds to this, the secret sin and it's like, well, doing this is not nearly as bad as so-and-so over there. It's not like I am fill-in-the-blank. And yet they hang on to the secret sin, and it doesn't take long for that to turn into high places in all their towns. Every watchtower, every fortified city, every high hill, every green tree is, it turns into a pagan site made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. Secret sin turns into wickedness. So the people assumed here that the, that the or sorry, Israel assumed that the people of the world were in the know. We're going to imitate the world because the world knows how things really ought to be. The world understands what music really is good. The world understands what is real art, and therefore we need to go along with it. The world understands what movies ought to look like, and we just sneer at uh, clean Christian productions otherwise because they don't rise to the level of the elitism of the world. And the world get, gets ethics, politics, entertainment, leisure, and finance so much better than the archaic opinions of a God who communicated last with humanity 2,000 years ago. So believers follow the world's philosophical choices step by step. Small, secret, and it, it blows up eventually. Sometimes it doesn't blow up until the lives of our children or grandchildren. Sometimes the fruit is not born for several generations because what we did was small. And it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that big a deal. It's not like I'm going to use that language. It's not like I'm going to commit that sin like they're doing on the screen. Yeah, and yet people are imbibing it, and it becomes part of the background noise in our own minds until it takes control. Verse 12, and they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. They would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. Disregarding is still disobeying. And there's a lot of warning before the final crash. And it's even a biblical pattern in discipline to warn and warn. So clear instructions are the foundation. You don't discipline without clear instructions. 
You don't do it. Why? Because it's unfair. It's unjust. You failed as an authority figure. You just kind of, well, you should have known. Okay, there are some things kids should have known. If you, if you told them thou shalt not hit thy sister and they haul off and kick her, like, I, I'm not going to itemize every body part with which thou shalt not strike thy sister. Okay, hitting and kicking and headbutting, it's all in the same camp and category. But principially, at least, you have to instruct thoroughly on the front end. But God did that. It's called his law. And you say, well, then the first time Israel sins, wham, God smashes them. <laughs> they disobeyed my law. No, what does he do next? No, that's not the way. This is the way. Walk in it. Prophet after prophet, a seer, one who sees, judge after judge, man of God after man of God, warning, warning, rebuking, change. some repent, some don't repent, but constant warning and input. And God allows the, the, the wickedness of a nation even to, to fester and grow to a chronic level, just like he does with the wickedness of an individual human being. So there's a lot of warning before the final crash. Our text calls this every prophet and every seer. Now we know that two of the mightiest prophets in all of Israel's history had their main ministry in Israel. Can anybody come up with big names? I'm talking the northern kingdom. Two of the mightiest prophets in all of Israel, all of, you'd say, Israel combined, Israel and Judah's history, ministered in the northern kingdom. Elijah and Elisha. But who else had ministries in the northern kingdom? Oh, I thought I wrote this down. Sorry, let me give you a list. I love lists. 2 Kings 14.1, Abijah the prophet predicts the death of Jeroboam's son. If his wife goes back into the city, his wife apparently doesn't believe him because she goes right back into the city and the child dies. 1 Kings 16, so that was 1 Kings 14, 1 Kings 16, 7. Jehu, the prophet, predicts the annihilation of Baasha's line. 1 Kings 18, 4. Lots of prophets existed in Jezebel's day. It just sums them up as she murdered the prophets, plural. 1 Kings 20, 13. An unnamed prophet predicts victory in battle. Later in the same chapter, 1 Kings 20, 25, another unnamed prophet predicts loss in battle. And guess what God's batting average is on that? When he predicts victory and you should have lost, you win. When he predicts loss and you should have won, you lose. God knows what's going to happen. Why don't you listen to him? So when he predicts consequences for your sin, you're going to lose. Repent. 1 Kings 22.8, Micaiah the prophet predicts the death of Ahab in battle. Ahab thinks he can subvert the will of God, and the statement of the prophet merely by sticking on somebody else's armor. Brilliant. You know, I'd be like, don't go into battle. You're going to die in this battle. Stay away from it. Don't go. Uh, I sort of believe, the, at least, at least I, I'm kind of like hedging my bets about it, but I don't really believe, and I can go into battle, and maybe God won't recognize me either if I wear something God sees you, and it doesn't even take somebody aiming. This is like, wee, arrow at a venture, you're dead. 
Second Kings 2 talks of the sons of the prophets, a whole school of the prophets taught by Elijah and Elisha that walk with them. Second Kings 14.25 refers to Jonah, the prophet, who's from a little village known as, Bible trivia, Gath Hefer, which is in Galilee, northern kingdom. So Jonah is from the northern kingdom. God does not leave himself without witness. It's characteristic yet of the sinful heart not to listen to truth and then feign ignorance when consequences come. I didn't know. Actually, it would be better to say I didn't listen. Sorry, this goes forward and backwards. Only one big button, little small button to go backwards. So basically, God is giving obstacles. The road is out ahead. Turn around. Go back. Barriers, obstacles, warning signs, doesn't matter. Anybody have to come to church on I-85 driving north on I-85? I'm sure this never happens to you where somebody sits in the far left-hand, sorry, not left-hand, right-hand merge lane, three merging lanes, right, coming off of Woodruff Road and and 385, and somebody sits over there, and and the signs are like, road ends, right lane is going away. And they're like, mm, right lane, right lane, right lane. And then when there's, there's no room left, none, the, it, the, the road ends. Whoomp, right, you know, right over, practically on top of another car, brakes slamming on, and accidents there constantly. Why? Because you're just like, mm, they don't know what they're talking about. Road signs, pfft. Like, seriously. I know that they leave road signs up sometimes way too long after the construction site is long past and things like that, but when it says the road is closed or the lane is ending, pay attention. Recently, I had a student ignore a first-day project instructions. Repeated in-class instructions, I literally would stop them and say, all right, are there any questions on your project that's coming due? Any questions? Okay. Now, since there are no questions, let me tell you about your project (laughs) that's coming due because you're going to get to the end point, and you're going to have made these mistakes because you're not paying attention. Can I please have some student vote that he's going to not listen right now? And I, I literally do this in class. I need some, somebody raise his hand. I, I'm not going to pay attention. Russ, thank you. Okay. You're the one who's not going to pay attention for the class. So everybody else is listening. Russ is not listening. All right. Here's what we do. I gave him all the processes. Student refuses to follow the process, and he comes to me. He was actually angry. At me, I could see it, and he was, I explained to him, you know, just sorry, this is the way things work, and no, you don't get the points back. And he just, his jaw was gritting, and his, you could see his temples bulging. He's like, that's not fair, and, you know, you should give me the points back. And I said, no, this is in your syllabus. And I covered it in class three different days, and you were there for all of them. You chose not to listen disregarding God is still disobeying. Don't make any pretense about, well, I just didn't do. God, God counts sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Ignoring him is disobeying. So how does this happen in mature Christian adult everyday life? Well, when we choose to, do, to be too busy with life to investigate what God has to say on the practical matters of life, We default either to what we were taught as children or what some other traditional source of information gave to us or what our own desires prefer. We never listen. I'm not saying we don't, in fact, listen. I'm saying that when we're within this self-justifying mode, we don't listen. 
This leads to a biblically ill-informed but confident pragmatic position that's really just a reflection of human will. Let's keep going. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord commanded they should not do like them. Um, This versage keeps going on. I'm going to skip it because we need to finish. Following the wicked is still failing. There's a really sad phrase in verse 15. They went after false idols and became false. This sounds a whole lot like Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. Noses, but don't smell. Hands, they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. And those, they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. How does that work? Let me use an illustration that, again, I know, I know none of us struggle with wealth and things like that. But when we talk about the rich, one of their problems is that they actually become like their wealth. How so? Very earthbound. The wealth itself is only a tool, useless for a short few years, and not a single coin goes with you into eternity. The people become like their wealth when they worship wealth because they become incredibly earthbound with nothing being laid up for eternity other than judgment. They literally are becoming like their coins. Pointless, useless when you just sit around and only doing good when you're actually extended and being used, but because of the greed and the self-inflection and, and, and pulling inward, it's never used. They become no good to any man. So again, we protest, well, I was misled into such a position. It's not my fault. Someone was mean enough to call me in this direction, and all I did was followed. How well does that work? Well, sure, I I participated in killing other people in concentration camps, but I was just doing what I was told. Yeah, well, sure, I I shot a whole bunch of unarmed prisoners in the back of the head, but my higher-up commanded that I do it. Interesting that human courts are not amused with that kind of reasoning. Now, Now, there are some individual situations you know, somebody holds a gun to your head while you're robbing them and says, you, you will rob them. They, they do, there are some things that come into play in that process. But following the wicked to do wickedness is no less than doing the wickedness ourselves. It is still a failure. And therefore, God rejects the descendants of Israel. He rejects the descendants of Israel and afflicts them. And the Lord removes Israel. I want to hang on to those two. Not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as bad as the world that's around me. I'm certainly not as bad as, and you fill in the blank, is still not good. And the not good that's in our own hearts can, can rise to the level of God rejects and God removes. And therefore, we have the privilege and opportunity of every time we come face-to-face with God's word like this today, of turning our hearts back to the Lord and repenting. I grew up in a family that tried to keep food from spoiling, probably like all the rest of your families. 
But there are some times when my mom tried to convince us to eat some less than appealing piece of fruit by saying, well, look, it's not as bad as those other ones. How well does that work on a teenage male? Seriously? That's your argument. Oh, it's not nearly as wormy as the other one. I, I actually have done that because we have grown, tried to grow peaches before, and you just, unless you spray them like constantly, you can't keep the worms out of them. So when we finally got a few peaches a, a few years back, I'd be like, I think, well, we can peel all the... Well, this one's not as bad as the others, and the kids were not amused. They're like, we'll take our peaches from <laughs> Publix. Thank you. You can, you can eat the peaches you grow. If we have enough sense to discern that with fruit, do we really think we can get away with it with God? Father, we're thankful that your word continues to reorient our thinking. Help us not to use the excuse this week that we're not as bad as the world. No, we're not. Fine. But the same corruption's going on in our hearts when we choose not to repent. We are fragile people. We are broken people. We need Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, to cover the sins past, but also the sins present and future. His is the only perfection that exists in the world, and we do not wish to cover our wrongdoing at all, ever. But instead, in Christ, be clothed with his righteousness, say, now we are good, not just not bad, but faithful to you. So bless us as we walk before you this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.